This episode of Hub Dialogues is a special presentation with Hub advertiser Pathways Alliance. The goal of each episode in this podcast series is to provide Hub listeners with the latest insights and analysis by industry experts and leaders who are acting on Pathways' ambitious call to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production and reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050. For more information on Pathways, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Hi, Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the latest in our podcast series with Pathways. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Sean Strickland, the Executive Director of Canada's Building Trades Unions. This is the national organization representing over half a million men and women working in a variety of construction roles across Canada, working on some of these big infrastructure projects that in the years and decades to come will be at the forefront of greening Canada's economy, especially within the energy industry. So what is the perspective of labor on the challenge of decarbonizing uh, Canadian energy production and distribution? Where are the potential choke points and problems that governments and businesses need to work through to unleash the full productive capacities of uh, skilled trades from coast to coast? And how can labor right now make an important contribution to these vital national projects related to a greener Canadian economy? We're going to get into all this and more with Sean Strickland. It's his voice you'll hear right after my short introduction. Hope you enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Sean, welcome to the Hub Dialogues. Thanks. It's great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Ditto. We've been kind of going around the horn, so to speak, talking to a lot of the key partners uh, involved directly or in the orbit of the Pathways Initiative. Uh, labor, obviously, a huge piece of this. This is uh, if we're going to meet our net zero uh, targets from operations by 2050. We're talking big public infrastructure, uh, private. Uh, builds that have got to be done and at scale and on time. So to get a, a kind of labor perspective on the opportunities and the challenges here is uh, really important. And let's um, let's start there, Sean. What's the, what's the current uh, state of uh, the building trades and the experience and resources that Canada has right now that it can marshal to to undertake uh, this uh, ambitious target? of pathways? Sure. Well, Canada's building trades, uh, great question. Canada's building trades, we represent 14 affiliated unions and 600,000 members right across Canada who work predominantly in construction, fabrication, maintenance, and uh, comprise 60 different trades. And so we're quite busy. There's lots of infrastructure happening right now. We have some pockets of unemployment, but we are really to net zero, recognizing that there are a lot of challenges along that path to net zero. Some of the polling that we've done with our membership, but particularly those that work in oil and gas, are concerned and a little bit nervous. They want to make sure we get this transition right. There's been many reports indicating that we could lose substantial amount of jobs in traditional oil and gas between now and 2050, uh, upwards of 400,000 jobs in oil and gas. 
And that is a lot of our members. In Alberta, for example, we have 60,000 members. And there's other reports from other institutions. I think it's the, the Royal Bank, for example, indicates that if we get this transition right, we could create more jobs than we lose. And they indicate that we could create up to 600,000 uh, more jobs. So that would be net of 200,000. And so, you know, we want to make sure we get the transition right, because as we lose those jobs in oil and gas, we have to make sure that projects like carbon sequestration for the pathways, small modular reactors, hydrogen projects, uh, traditional nuclear, renewables, they all come on stream at the right kind of time. So we don't lose workers and no worker lets, gets left behind as we go through this transition. So I'd say we're very optimistic about the future, but we are a little bit nervous and we're working really hard to make sure we get this transition right. Great insights. Yeah. And I think one of the things we've heard in these pathway conversations is that, you know, the need for regulators to kind of catch up with the, uh, as you say, the the staging of this, right? If we don't get the permissions and the, the ability to move forward now, be multi-year decade plus, you know, planning cycles to bring about these big energy transitions. As you say, that transition could be rougher and bumpier than it needs to be. Talk to us a bit about the set that the trades are bringing to these challenges around decarbonization. My sense is that, you know, thanks in many ways to the oil and gas industry over the previous decades, you know, We've got a great workforce in terms of its ability to kind of manage, you know, the challenges of implementing and building out these kind of complex, large infrastructure projects based on new technologies. Is that the right assumption? Absolutely. 100%. We have, I would say, the highest skilled trades workforce uh, in the world. Uh, we have done tremendously complex projects uh, right now, for example, where executing the $40 billion LNG facility in uh, Kitimat, British Columbia. We're also working on the multi-billion dollar uh, Site C, uh, auto plants, manufacturing the oil and gas. At any given time, we have thousands of workers who, you know, initiated the oil sands discoveries and the and the upgraders and, and now are maintaining uh, all of those uh, facilities. I, I say to people that, um, not even to mention all the nuclear facilities in Ontario, so we're very well diverse and highly skilled workforce. And and when people talk to us about, you know, transferability of skills, these new energy sources of the future, I say, you know, we're we're there. And we have been there. And I say kind of candidly that skilled trades force, uh, skilled trades workers, we've been around since the aqueducts of Rome and the, the pyramids uh, of Egypt. Now the the poor folks who built those pyramids in Egypt could have used a good collective agreement, but we, 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 you know, we've, we, we always are adapting and, and, and changing. And when our contractors get different jobs with different technologies, we go to our training centers and we train on those new technologies and those new ways to build buildings and those new ways to build new power systems. And, and so we're constantly evolving and training and, and training is in our, our DNA. So we're very well positioned uh, to build these new energy sources and the new buildings of the future. Our biggest challenge, as you point out, is going to be in regulatory. Uh, we have to get that regulatory regime right. We need to have some efficiencies in our regulatory framework between the provincial and federal governments. And then we also need to look seriously at labor supply and how we can attract more people 
into the skilled trades. Those are the two biggest risks to this transition, I would say, is the regulatory framework and labor supply. What could you use from from business, uh, your partners, and also from government to ensure that both you have, but also, as you say, we maintain this kind of world-leading technical capacity amongst the trades so that when we're coming to these, you know, and let's face it, they're going to be complex infrastructure projects around, let's say, technologies like carbon sequestration. We're all, you know, working out and building out at scale is going to be no easy task. It's an ambitious project. It's going to require all of our kind of attention and skill and focus. What do you need from those two key partners to ensure that we're going to have the workforce a decade from now that can continue this kind of push towards net zero from operations by 2050? Well, I think that the the governments, uh, various governments in various jurisdictions, the federal government is is getting it, particularly on the uh, drive to net zero and, and, and skilling of the workforce. And they've made investments in the union trading and innovation program. They've doubled those investments, and that helps with our 200 training centers right across the country. They've also put into place the Sustainable Jobs Act, uh, which is going to help manage this transition, and labor is going to be at the table for for that. So, so that's encouraging. Uh, but to meet to meet the the labor requirements, uh, we need to have a look at our at our immigration system, and and it's important to re- realize that. And in, in Canada, the industry, entire construction industry, brings in around 100,000 new apprentices every year. And even though we're bringing in these new apprentices, those apprentices are just keeping pace with retirements. And so we're able to keep pace with, with retirements and deliver the jobs today. But when you overlay that with these new jobs of the future, we're going to have a gap. and We're going to need more workers. And even though we're bringing in apprentices and we're we're attracting young people and, and we're diversifying our workforce and getting more women and Indigenous and LGBTQ+, we're doing everything we can as an industry to get more people into the industry and more apprentices. It's not going to be enough based on the work picture that's ahead of us. So we need the government to help us with uh, immigration. We need the government to help us with our education programs in our schools, uh, the, the shop classes and industrial arts that used to be there, you know, 25, 30 years ago, many have been phased out. And so we need to reposition the trades within our education systems is a very viable option for young people. It's a good option uh, for many compared to college and or our university and elevate the status of trades within our education system and lay that on with some good progressive immigration policy where we can attract good skilled trades workers from overseas to come to Canada and and contribute to growing and building our country. Yeah, just some terrific insights there, Sean. I could not agree with you more that, you know, we've we need to valorize uh, the trades as uh just a, a terrific career opportunity for so many people. We're, you know, putting a lot of human kind of talent and potential into universities for higher education and that's great. You know, in that softer kind of knowledge worker end of the job spectrum, but we need those very uh, specific technical skills that are going to have to build out the infrastructure of the tree for all of us to kind of live and work. Uh, let's talk, Sean, a bit about 
the state of labor in Canada right now, you know, inflation has had a, a pernicious effect on the cost of living. Many Canadians, um, including I'm sure members, feeling the kind of pinch of inflation. We've seen some large-scale labor unrest uh, as a result, understandably. What is the, the feeling amongst your membership right now uh, in terms of uh, that balance of of kind of power between, you know, your your union membership and the power that you represent vis-a-vis corporations? And is there a kind of rebalancing of that relationship and a greater opportunity for labor to kind of share in the collective profits of the enterprises that you're engaged with, you know, in partnership with the corporations that are going to be leading, in in this case, a lot of the build out of this new infrastructure. That's a very insightful observation and question, uh, Rudyard. I I would say that uh, labor based on just, I was just at a conference, um, you know, recently and um, with construction workers and, and union leaders, and they shared some polling that they did amongst their membership. And, and the number one concern, which it was unusual, we haven't seen that before. Oftentimes it's about, you know, job opportunities and, and healthcare and education, maybe environment, but the number one was finances. So, you know, uh, our members, they make good money, but when your mortgage payment goes up five to $700 a month, uh, when it costs you twice, twice as much maybe to fill your gas tank, uh, this puts a lot of pressure on, on families' uh, pocketbooks, you know, middle-class families who are, who are making good money. And so, and so when it comes to collective bargaining, uh, like in Ontario, for example, uh, last year we had, I think it was six or seven strikes and the union executive were recommending to the membership that they take the offer from the employer. And in all cases, the union membership turned it down. They said, I need more than two and a half percent. And so many of those settlements ended up at around four percent a year over over three years. We're having settlements uh, in the West right now that some are five and six percent. And I think this reflective of a couple things. It's reflective of the fact that that people, middle class earners and skilled tradespeople uh, are really feeling this financial pinch. I mean, you can read in the business papers about inflation, how it's inf- affecting people. But unless you're unless you're living it, it's just it's it's kind of hypothetical. Our members are living this, and they're living this uh, every day as they try to try to raise their families, and that's reflective. I think in, in members' willingness to go on strike for 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 more pay, so they can maintain you know, maintain their quality of life. We're not talking about making tremendous gains over and above uh, inflation when you're getting 4% inflation, the 4% increase in inflation is running at, at 3%. So that's reflective uh, in, in the bargaining table as well. And I think what we're also going to see is, uh, particularly in construction, is that labor and labor supply is is becoming much more of an issue for the successful execution of projects. And and when that happens, you got a lot of supply and demand come into play and and you need more labor and you need skilled labor. Uh, owners, corporate Canada, are beginning to realize that they have to pay for good skilled labor. And I, I think that this is a really a rebalancing of that power dynamic, uh, which is good for workers in Canada in the long run. 
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, let's acknowledge the dynamic, you know, for a while ran the other way. So, you know, people should be aware that it's kind of, this is it's a good way to put it, a rebound. And these skills are needed. They're in high demand, which goes back to your insight, Sean, that, you know, the trades is a viable career option for younger people. We just do a better job of putting that on people's uh, radars. Because my contributions, this is Sean, maybe you would agree, are going to go away, I think. You know, highly skilled, you know, labor to be in demand. Or sometimes we've got reshoring going on. We've got the deep, um, in many cases of industries from overdependence on China and Asia. Sean, doesn't this all suggest, you know, labor's preeminence, its prominence in this drive over the next couple of decades towards a greener economy and a greener energy systems to power that economy? Maybe this is kind of labor's time to shine. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's a tremendous opportunity, and it it is labor's uh, time to shine. And as I said from the onset, uh, we have to make sure we get it right. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. We have to seize on that opportunity. We have to, you know, get that regulatory regime correct. I mean, there, there's, there's. Uh, there, there, there's no point in establishing targets to reduce our carbon to net, net zero if we can't get the approvals in place to build a massive game-changing project like the Pathways Alliance, you know, a $40 billion carbon sequestration project in Alberta that not only will uh, extend the life of the oil sands, but extend that life of the oil sands in a net zero carbon fashion, which would be world leading. But if we can't get the regulatory approvals in place in time, then then we're going to lose that opportunity. We're going to lose that economic opportunity for Canada and for workers for good. Similarly, in Ontario, uh, where we have tremendous investments, like we're seeing a manufacturing renaissance in Ontario with the automotive and uh, clean steel as well, and other industries. And, and part of that is related to the raw materials being located in the mines in Ontario and, and Manitoba and in, in Canada right now. It takes up to 15 years to get approval for a new mine. And so that's got to change if, if we're going to be able to fulfill this economic promise of providing electrical vehicle producers and electric battery producers, the lithium and the chromite and and the tungsten and the copper and all the rare minerals that they need. And so so there's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done here on this file to, to get there. And and if, if and we're at the table with the government and with industry to help us get there because we need to get this right. And as our economy's gone through transitions in the past, workers were left behind and we weren't at the table. You know, it wasn't too long ago we went through the the, the US and Canada free trade and, and that cost us thousands and thousands of jobs and change people's 
lives for a long time in a negative kind of way. You know, people went to work on a regular basis and worked in our auto plants and tire plants and all kinds of manufacturing industries. And there was no real plan attached to that transition in our economy. And then you overlaid that with the GST. It was like an economic disaster for 10 years for workers. And so the government gets that. They understand we need to do better uh, in order to manage this transition. But this regulatory piece is critical. And if we get that right, I agree 100 uh, percent. This is going to be labor's time to shine. It's going to be a great opportunity for young people to get in the trades. And, and the other thing about that is that we can re- recast uh, and, 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 you know, talk about a career in the trades, not only as an apprentice and a journey person, but many of our tradespeople go on to run their own companies. There's management jobs, project managers, project directors. But in this case, you're also talking about saving the planet. And I know that sounds like an overstatement, but when we're reducing carbon and you're working there at these facilities that, that are reducing carbon and, and providing the new energy sources of a future world and a carbon-free world, that's pretty exciting for a tradesperson to be part of that. And we're really hoping we can leverage that to attract more people into the industry. So I agree, we have a tremendous opportunity in front of us, but we have some heavy lifting to do to get there. And we need to make sure as a society, as a Canadian government, all governments of all stripes and all jurisdictions, uh, we need to you know, get in that proverbial Canadian canoe and, and all paddle in the same direction to get there. Yeah, that's important. Uh, this regulatory piece is important because the government is moving forward with some pretty bold regulatory announcements. All electric vehicle fleets in the country by the 2030s, we've got new guidelines out for, you know, power generation saying, you know, any new natural gas plants built in Canada after 2025 are going to have to have carbon sequestration attached to them. I mean, these these dates, Sean, are moving up fast. I, I have a sense here, maybe a concern here of, you know, our reach just exceeding our grasp, right? That we're putting these very bold kind of targets out. But as you say, if we if we can't get the approvals in place, there it just seems to me a a, a risk here of as a risk in staging and timing and potentially a lot of uncertainty. I guess that what what I'm hearing, Sean, through these podcasts of talking to different people around pathways is just a persistent problem with uncertainty about you know corporations knowing where and how they can invest. I assume you, in terms of your your workers understanding when these projects are going to happen and when you need to assemble the, you know, the teams and the skills to deliver on these things. To what extent is uncertainty still out there, Sean? And to what extent do you think that's really what the nut that we have to crack? We need more certainty about how these projects are going to proceed on what timeframes and, you know, in what policy framework. 100%. Uh, that's, that's the biggest risk to all of this and the the challenge is when you set targets and i don't think we should adjust the targets for net zero by 2050 and reducing carbon in the oil sands i can't remember the exact number but i think it's like 30 percent by 2030 Uh, we need to have those targets but we need to have those targets based in some sort of regulatory reality and that that regulatory reality does not match up with the target right now in a lot 
lot of different sectors. In some areas, it does, like the electrification of vehicles and the you know clean electricity policies. There's some areas where we're going to be able to to get there. There's some other areas where there's greater uncertainty, and 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 that uncertainty is a project killer uh, because these are big corporations, big companies with. Uh, Lots of investment opportunities, not only in Canada but also around the world, and 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 that's something that we need to continue to emphasize uh, with the government. And in the Sustainable Jobs Act, they they recognize that, and they are talking about you know regulatory efficiencies. Minister Wilkinson talks about that. Minister Freeland talks about that. Minister Gibo talks about that. And, and so when you, you put legislation on paper and you say all the right kinds of things, that's really encouraging. And the industry and Canadians can get excited about that. But where we traditionally break down in Canada is when we take it from the legislative paper to the project execution and the regulatory framework and the final investment decision that's where it often breaks down in Canada. And we have, you know, contemporary examples. We, I would say maybe 10, 12 years ago, uh, we had proposals for almost a dozen LNG uh, plants in Northern British Columbia and in Alberta, because we need opportunities to get our oil to Tidewater and we need to get our natural resources to Tidewater and not just down to the United States through existing pipeline system. And of those dozen or so projects, we only ended up with one. And for a variety of reasons, the other ones all kind of fell by the, fell by the wayside. So we missed a tremendous opportunity there. And, and, and that's something that uh, the government's trying to focus on, trying to pay attention to. But if you are a private sector developer and you're looking at making billions and billions of dollars of investments in these new uh, energy sources of the future, you know, hydrogen and SMRs, you need certainty. And I think that's something that we need to work on more uh, with the, the regulatory bodies and with the federal government to drive more certainty into and beyond the legislation uh, and towards project execution. So businesses and Canadians can make the decisions and really buy in to this path to net zero. Yeah, imagine if we'd had all that liquefied natural gas capacity up and running and, you know, uh, we could have sort of this horrible war in Ukraine provided our allies and other, you know, similarly like this with secure energy, both in Asia, but also ultimately uh, if we could have figured it out in Europe too. Think of the contribution that would have made both to uh, peace and security in the world and frankly to Canada's own you know, preeminence and influence uh, internationally, Sean. I think uh, what's exciting to me about this story around a drive to by 2050 is it's a, a chance for Canada to attain a, you know, sector that we have critical economy, but it's also important to how we're perceived internationally and what kind of Canada's value added is to the world. And I, I know that you must think about these things. You must be kind of trying to walk, thread a needle, so to speak, between working with government and pushing government. Do you think we get this, Sean? Let's leave government aside for a moment. Do you, a lot of 
negativity at times. I'm recording, talking to you from Toronto, downtown Toronto. I got to say, at times I feel that, you know, a lot of people in this city here in Toronto are quick to kind of write off the energy sector in Canada. They're quick to say, let's, uh, let's move on. You know, we, we, we should be all renewables. We should be all hydroelectric. Um, do you think there's a problem here in terms of education amongst the broader of the energy sector to our own economic, just to, to Canada's proposition? What the heck do we offer the world? I agree. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And, and, uh, you know, not, not to be too glib about it, but there are, there is a component, um, you know, many urban educated um, folks uh, believe that we should leave the oil in the ground. I think that that opinion has started to change uh, in terms of uh, economic um, and world order based on, you know, your reference to the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict. If we had those LNG plants, I think that would have severely weakened Russia's position when they invaded uh, Ukraine. Um, so, so I think that there is a changing of the thinking around, you know, good oil versus bad oil. And there's, you know, the international energy agencies talking about how much, you know, oil production is actually going to have to, to go up between now and 2050, just based on uh, world population and, and world growth and industry. And, and a lot of folks, just that education piece, and this is where I'm referencing, I don't want to be too glib about it, but almost 90% of the plastic, almost 90% of the parts in a Tesla come from oil and gas. Like people don't understand that the plastic chair they're sitting on comes from the oil and gas industry. You know, uh, the cosmetics that we use uh, for, you know, the cosmetics that we use come from oil and gas. Uh, you know, so the oil and gas and, and, and the oil industry and the tremendous amount of manufacturing that comes out of the oil sands and uh, oil itself uh, has has you know permeates all of our modern living, and so it's it's it, it concerns me sometimes when you know folks and I have nothing against Tesla. I think it's great that we go to electric vehicles, and they've done a, a pretty good job of that. Um, you know, my opinions on their CEO aside, but I think that people don't understand. Like they get into a Tesla and they think, "Oh, good, I'm saving the planet, and let's leave the oil on the ground." But wait a minute. If it wasn't for oil, you wouldn't be sitting in a Tesla right now. And I think that's an education piece that we need to to share with people. Uh, and as people fly around the world, uh, you know, the jet fuel comes from oil and gas. Uh, so there's a tremendous amount of of economic uh, and manufacturing uh, processes that use oil. And you're dead on. We need to do a better education uh, improved education on on all these, uh, you know, manufacturing aspects of oil and their uh, substrates and how they're used to create our, our modern world. Sean, thank you so much for such a fulsome conversation. We touched on a lot of the key issues and ideas that I was hoping we would. If people want to find out more about Canada's building trades unions, where can they go? cbtu.ca that's their website and i would also uh, encourage your listeners if they're 
if they're interested in a career in the trades, um, you go to our website. You can also get a link to constructiontradeshub.ca, which has uh, overviews of the 60 different construction trades in Canada and, and what it would require to get into the trade. So some really good resources on our website. Excellent, Sean. Thank you so much. I uh, look forward to talking again with you and congratulations on um, all the important things that Building Trades are doing with regards to Canada's various commitments to decarbonize our economy. Fantastic conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Rudyard. Come back anytime. Thanks. This episode of Hub Dialogues was a paid promotional partnership with Pathways Alliance. For more information about Pathways and their plans to decarbonize Canada's oil sands production to reach net zero emissions from operations by 2050, visit pathwaysalliance.ca. Are you a leading industry group with an important public policy message? If so, be sure to check out the Hub's new digital marketing platform. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca forward slash marketing.